the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We've got quite a lineup today. We'll be talking with E.J. Antony later this hour, a research fellow in regional economics at the Heritage Foundation's Center for Data Analysis. Whew, I'm exhausted just saying it all. Anyway, he's going to respond to the numbers in the president's economy that were uh, made public earlier today. We'll also talk with Dinesh D'Souza. He has a movie coming out. It's titled 2000 Mules. There's a limited theatrical release that's coming up on Monday, May the 2nd and Wednesday, May the 4th at the Century Clackamas Town Center. We'll tell you what the movie is all about. There are also a couple of other ways to see the movie. There's a virtual premiere that's one night only on May the 7th. Um, you can also uh, do a digital download and pre-order the DVD. We'll fill you in on all those details when he joins me in the five o'clock hour. We'll talk with Wes Walterman. He is the director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir, and I am delighted uh, to speak with him. As you may know, he had heart surgery uh, that he didn't know about uh, until a couple of days before the Portland Singing Christmas Tree this last uh, winter. But he is back on his feet, and this will be his first return uh, as a director of the Singing Christmas Tree. This is the hymn sing that's coming up Saturday, May the 7th. There are two performances, one at 3 o'clock, one at 6 o'clock at Southwest Bible Church in Beaverton. We'll give you all the important details, but if you can't wait, you can go to the website singingchristmastree.org or call the box office at 503-557-8733. That's the phone number for the Singing Christmas Tree. And again, that website, singingchristmastree.org. It's all that coming up in the next um, hour and a half. First, taking a look at some of the day's headlines, gross domestic product declined at a 1.4 percent annualized rate over the first quarter of 2022, according to data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis that was released today. Economists had predicted a GDP growth rate of about 1 percent for the first quarter. The contraction comes after the economy grew by 5.5 percent in 2021 and by 6.9 percent in the final quarter of 2021 alone. Well, the news comes after the Federal Reserve announced in March that it's going to raise interest rates over the course of the year. Meanwhile, Deutsche Bank told clients on Tuesday that the U.S. will likely enter a recession. Uh, We will get a major recession, Deutsche Bank economists wrote in a report titled Why the Coming Recession Will Be Worse Than Expected. The report's author said the Fed will have uh, have to raise interest rates aggressively in order to bring down inflation to the agency's goal of 2%. The consumer price index rose 8.5% in March of uh, this year. 
compared to the same month last year, the highest increase since the 12-month period ending in December of 1981. And as we uh, discussed yesterday, it's actually higher than that in some areas. And a highly, uh, it is highly likely that the Fed will have to step on the brakes even more firmly and a deep recession will be needed to bring inflation to yield, the report states. However, the authors also note that their outlook is more pessimistic than those of other economists. Goldman Sachs, for example, has forecast a 35% chance of a recession within the next two years. So you can choose which of those versions you want to hold on to. We'll be talking with E.J. Antony coming up uh, later this hour about the uh, economic forecast. So stick around for that. Meanwhile, President Biden attempted to allay concerns about the performance of the U.S. economy today after the Commerce Department announced the economy shrank over the first quarter of this year. I'm not concerned about a recession, the president told reporters at a press conference at the White House. I mean, you're always concerned about a uh, recession, but the GDP, you know, fell to 1.4 percent, the president said. But here's the deal. We also had last quarter consumer spending and business investment and residential investment increase at significant rates and unemployment's the lowest rate since 1970. Well, the president said that the U.S. was seeing enormous economic growth alongside COVID disruptions. I think we're what you are seeing is enormous growth in the country that was affected by everything from COVID and the uh, COVID um, blockages that occurred along the way. The president said, now you always have to be take a look and no one is predicting a recession now. Well, there are quite a few people who are predicting a recession now, but he says they're predicting there. Some are predicting there may be a recession in 2023. I'm concerned about it. So I'm not sure if he is concerned or not concerned, because in that same statement, he said one of each. But um, he believes if a recession were to come, it wouldn't be until next year. It only takes two. um, What is it? Two quarters to make a recession. We'll see what actually happens. Anyway, gross domestic product declined during the first quarter of 2022 at an annualized rate, as mentioned earlier. A report from the Deutsche Bank economist to clients warned that a major recession is coming and could be worse than expected. So all of that in context will be the subject of our conversation with E.J. Antony later this hour. In other news, conservatives on social media slammed the Biden administration after it was announced that a disinformation governance board is being established to combat disinformation in the 2022 midterms. Certainly it will be nonpartisan, impartial. I mean, that's how they do it in China and other communist countries where this sort of thing is more common. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, he testified Wednesday that a disinformation governance board had recently been created days after Tesla CEO Elon Musk purchased Twitter to combat online disinformation and will be led by Undersecretary of Policy Rob Silvers and Principal Deputy General Counsel Jennifer Gaskill, who has a rather interesting background of her own. Well, the goal is to bring the resources of DHS together to address this threat. So free speech has now been distilled to disinformation and a certain segment of the population must be silenced. It's a different America than I'm used to, but this is where we're headed. Missouri Senator Josh Hawley referred to a board as a disgrace and wrote a letter to Mayorkas demanding answers as to how the board will operate. Is there anything more dystopian than the disinformation governance board run by the federal government? The Florida Republican congressional candidate, Dr. Willie Montague, he tweeted along with or rather adding in a later tweet that the board is Orwellian. 
They didn't need a disinformation governance board until Elon Musk threatened their control over the narrative. Texas Republican Congressman Troy Nails tweeted, the libs spent the last weeks planting the seeds for the backup plan in case the Twitter deal actually happened. Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert tweeted, today's news of a Biden-backed disinformation governance board is dystopian. They can't afford to let the truth be anything but what they say. Well, the uh, governance board is a real world ministry of truth. Daily writer, uh, Daily Wire reporter Megan Basham tweeted a conservative movement that um, doesn't fight this with everything it uh, it has isn't worthy of the name or the name American and the back and forth continues. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back shortly. And later this hour, E.J. Antony will be talking about the economy. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, E.J. Antony, Research Fellow in Regional Economics with the Heritage Foundation Center for Data Analysis. He'll respond to the uh, economic numbers and the president's response. We'll also talk in the five o'clock hour with Dinesh D'Souza. He has an upcoming movie, 2000 Mules, with limited theatrical release coming the second and the fourth of May. And we'll talk with Wes Walterman. He's the director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir. The uh, 2022 Hymn Sing is coming up May the 7th. And there are two performances. We'll give you all the important details, or you can go to the website, singingchristmastree.org, for the details. Well, President Biden told teachers that when in class, children are like yours and no one and uh, not anyone else's. Well, parents didn't take too kindly to that notion. The president's remarks came during a teacher of the year event at the White House on Wednesday. Uh, they're not someone else's children. They're our children, the president said, and they are the kite strings that literally lift our national ambitions aloft. The president reiterated the statement later in his address. You have heard me say it many times about our children, our children, but it's true. They are they're all our children. And the reason you are the teachers of uh, the year is because you recognize that uh, they're not someone else's children. They're like yours when they're in the classroom, end quote. Well, the president's statements come at a time when Democrats and Republicans in different states are at odds over whether parents should have control over what their children are taught in school. So it might not have been the most favorable statement to use. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis signed a law prohibiting lessons about sexual orientation or gender identity before third grade, only for Democrats to vilify the legislation by calling it the Don't Say Gay Bill. Last year, Glenn Youngkin was elected governor of Virginia after opponent Terry McAuliffe said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. So the back and forth continues on the subject of education. Well, in other news, um, instituting uh, implicit bias training, blue states across the country are using billions of taxpayer dollars from President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package to push CRT in public schools. And Georgetown University students told Fox News COVID-19 and climate change are their top priorities headed into the midterm elections. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy received a standing ovation during a GOP meeting after leaked audio tapes were released. Apparently doesn't matter. Well, demanding answers, Senator Josh Hawley wrote to Google CEO um, uh, demanding answers uh, to the tech giants email spam filtering algorithms exhibiting political bias. And President Biden hasn't uh, done a formal sit down television interview since he spoke with NBC's Lester Holt. Back in February, that was 78 days ago. 
Some people are starting to notice the media's Musk meltdown, MSNBC, CBS and The View panic over misinformation and free speech on the soon to be Musk owned Twitter. Hasn't even happened yet. And they've already gone apoplectic. MSNBC host Joy Reid's readout finished April with its smallest monthly audience in the program's nearly two year history. And a mainstream reporter smeared um, Musk for his takeover of Twitter, accusing him of attacking, harassing employees because he critiqued their behavior. He says he doesn't like the way it's being run, and that is considered attacking and harassing employees. So I don't know how you manage if that's how it's now defined. Former Veep Mike Pence says the U.S. Supreme Court can step in and save religious liberty for football coaches and all Americans after a coach was fired for private prayers after games. A decision on that Supreme Court hearing is expected sometime in June. Greg Gutfeld says it's the left acting as censors now, claiming that words are weapons. And David N. Bossy suggests appointing an independent special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden is simply the right thing to do. Whether or not it's actually done. Citing uh, shuttering oil refineries, experts say American oil refineries are shuttering amid the president's hostile fossil fuel policies, adding to pain at the pump for consumers. It's NFL draft night. The 2022 NFL draft will be in Las Vegas tonight, and apparently they're all dolled up and ready to go. The U.S. economy likely uh, slowed to a crawl during the first three months of the year, dampened by the uh, record U.S. trade deficit and slower inventory growth. Well, economic anxiety is rising. Be anxious for nothing for those of you who are uh, among that uh, that crowd. Certainly there is reason for concern, but... We can put our hope elsewhere. Americans' uh, confidence in the economy remains very low and mentions of economic issues as the most important problem in the U.S. are at their highest point since 2016. Inflation, which registered as the top economic problem last month and continues to be, was previously at this level in 1984. Breitbart, on the eve of the election of Donald Trump in 2016, 31% of Americans named an economic issue as the most important facing the country. That number steadily fell throughout the administration, eventually surpassing the previous record low of 13% set in 1999. Russia turned the gas off for two NATO nations, Poland and Bulgaria. From the story in AP News, Russia cut off natural gas to NATO members Poland and Bulgaria on Wednesday and threatened to do the same to other countries, dramatically escalating its standoff with the West over the war in Ukraine. European leaders decried the move as blackmail a day after the U.S. and other Western allies vowed to speed more and heavier weapons to Ukraine. The Kremlin used its most essential export as leverage against two of Kiev's uh, staunch backers. Gas prices in Europe shot up. On the news and the Daily Wire reports that Bulgarian Prime Minister uh, Petkov um, noted the coercion, the concern rather in a, a Twitter post mentioning a call with the Greek Prime Minister uh, Mitsotakis or something very like that regarding energy security and diversification. The Poland prime minister, whose name I'm not even going to attempt, said that he believed the move was in revenge for his nation's support of Ukraine following Russia's invasion. Russia gas um, corporation Gazprom announced on Wednesday that it had shut off access due to unpaid April bills after the nation refused to pay in Russian currency. 
New York State's gerrymandering effort has been shot down by a judge. New York's highest court sided with Republicans on Wednesday in a decision that invalidated Democrats' redistricting map, map rather, after finding it was gerrymandered in a partisan manner to give advantages to Democrat candidates. The new district map was created and passed by Democrat-controlled state legislature after an independent redistricting commission deadlocked and was unable to reach an agreement on how to draw districts following the 2020 census. The Washington Free Beacon says that Democrats had hoped the aggressive New York map would offset Republican gains in states such as Texas and Florida, where Republican-controlled legislatures approved their own partisan maps as part of the once-a-decade redistricting process that follows the uh, decennial U.S. census. So it happens on both sides. California plans to raise their highest in the nation gas tax. The state with the nation's highest gas tax is going even higher. From the story, California lawmakers appear unlikely to pause the annual summer increase in the state's gasoline tax ahead of a May 1st deadline, Governor Gavin Newsom's office said on Monday. Newsom, a Democrat, had previously expressed support for helping California motorists experiencing pain at the pump by waiting to implement the 5.6 percent tax hike scheduled to take effect on July the 1st. The tax is used to fund roads and other infrastructure projects. The state's legislative analyst's office projected the tax will generate about $8.8 billion in revenue during the 2021-22 fiscal year. Prices for a regular gallon of gas hit $4.13 on Wednesday. That's nothing compared to what we're paying. According to AAA, up from $2.88 a year ago. But California, as is usually the case, has seen the steepest prices in the country, with a gallon of gas reaching $5.68. In some parts of the state, prices are even higher. Mono County has recorded an average price of $6.61 per gallon. Assemblyman Vince Fong says the governor once again has failed to exercise leadership to stop the gas tax increase as promised. Another empty commitment. And the Washington Examiner reports the legislature has nixed several attempts to push through a Republican bill to suspend the entire gas tax for eight months. Democrats cite concern over lost revenue, but the state currently has a $46 billion budget surplus, which could increase by $23 billion after um, income taxes are tallied. President Joe Biden to teachers, children are yours when they're in the classroom and nobody else's. The president spoke to a teacher of the year event held Wednesday. The president plans to appoint a new disinformation czar. Nina Jankovic uh, will head the disinformation governance board. The Department of Homeland Security is setting up a new board designed to counter misinformation. The government will decide what misinformation is misinformation related to homeland security with a focus specifically on Russia and irregular migration. But it will migrate into other issues as well. The board will be called the Disinformation Governance Board and will be headed by Executive Director Nina Jankovic, who has something of an interesting history herself. Uh, Joe um uh, Pospiak says we caught the Biden disinformation head in a lie on the day on day one of the job. Well, PayPal is closing a second office in San Francisco. They've located uh, have a location on Market Street between First and Fremont Streets, and it will remain open for employees to use on a voluntary basis until early June. The San Francisco office houses staff who work for the company's uh, Zoom uh, service that allows customers to send money to family and friends around the world and pay international bills. PayPal previously had two offices in San Francisco and closed the other earlier in the pandemic. 
The company's stock hit a 52-week low this week ahead of its quarterly earnings report scheduled on Wednesday. Coming up, we're going to uh, have a conversation with E.J. Antony, Research Fellow in Regional Economics with the Heritage Foundation's Center for Data Analysis. He'll respond to the numbers. The, the economy will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the Biden administration today announced its advance estimate for first quarter real gross domestic product growth. It was negative 1.4 percent. But the president said, I'm not concerned about a recession. He was speaking at a press conference at the White House. He said GDP, you know, fell to 1.4 percent. Uh, we also had last quarter consumer spending and business investment uh, and residential investment increase at significant rates. Unemployment's the lowest rate since 1970. He said that we're seeing uh, enormous uh, growth in the country and no one is predicting a recession. Well, that's not entirely true. Several are. In fact, Deutsche Bank uh, economists said that a major recession is coming and could be worse than expected. Well, what sh- what should we make of um, the the numbers when they come out, are we in good shape or are we not? Well, E.J. Antony is a research fellow in regional economics with the Heritage Foundation's Center for Data Analysis. And maybe help us uh, make some sense of what we have uh, now learned and what it might mean moving forward. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Georgine, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you, first of all, to comment on uh, the growth, uh, the negative growth of uh, GDP, 1.4%. Reason for concern or uh, light and optimistic, as the uh, president seemed to indicate earlier today? No, it's certainly a reason for concern. Uh, You know, as often happens with this White House, the president gave us a few facts, which are true. Right. We had personal consumption expenditures growing. Right. Consumption. That's that's how much you and I are actually spending on goods and services that did grow. Uh, But how much did it actually grow by? Well, over three hundred ninety billion dollars. If you're just talking about how much of today's dollars people actually spend. But once you adjust those dollars for inflation, Mm -hmm. it only rose about it only rose about 90 billion dollars or so. In other words, prices are going up dramatically, and people can't keep up with it. So even though we're spending a whole heck of a lot more than we used to just four months ago, right? in terms of what we're actually able to buy, it's not that much more. And then we actually are seeing the same thing as we look at businesses. We're, we're seeing businesses unable to replenish inventories because it's costing them so much, and they're not yet able to pass on all of those costs to consumers. So we saw business inventories falling over $30 billion in this report. So all in all, the the biggest takeaway isn't even the negative growth, though. The biggest takeaway is an 8% inflation, inflation rate, which is what they use to go from the nominal GDP to real GDP. That is the highest since the second quarter of 1981. I think most Americans want to take an optimistic view. The president says he's not concerned about um, a recession. He says nobody's really predicting a recession. Well, the Deutsche Bank said that um, warned of a major recession, that it's coming. It could be worse than expected. What's what's an accurate view of what to expect? I know you need to have two 
what is it, two quarters um, of uh, no growth for there to be a re- uh, to be a recession. What's a, a, a an accurate view of what's happening in terms of what we can expect moving forward? Sure. Well, I mean, the president's concern of a recession really doesn't affect the probability of it. Right. So let, let's just look at the numbers. Inflation has essentially completely undermined the foundation of, of economic growth. What I mean by that is once you actually look at the numbers, once once you go beyond just like the headline, you see that inflation is rampant. It's robbing people of their purchasing power. It functions as a tax. And ultimately, it's drowning out growth so that you you may see it. Let's say you're a business owner. You may see the bottom line growing, but you realize you're not actually selling more stuff. It's just that the prices of the things you sell are going up, which sounds great, except at the same time, everything that you're paying for that you're later going to sell is also going Mm -hmm. up in price. So all of your vendors are charging you more. So at the end of the day, you're not actually any better off. And that's, that's exactly the phenomenon that we're seeing with this later, latest economics report. And Georgine, you're absolutely right. Once you have two quarters in a row, that's the textbook definition of a recession. So we're basically halfway there now. Now, the president also said that uh, w- part of the problem is that the Republicans are not on board with his economic plan, which essentially is raising taxes and doing more spending, uh, that that really is the solution. And it's the Republicans' fault that we're not seeing uh, better numbers. Your response to that assessment? I mean, it's, at least it's not Vladimir Putin this time. It's it's the Republicans' fault. No, it's true. It's not Vladimir Putin. But like like many of this president's sound bites, they're they're just not very sound. If if the president says that that is the path to economic growth, and that is essentially what we have done so far during the first year of his administration, why is the economy growing slower and not faster? than it was previously. What we have seen is essentially, if you look at nominal GDP growth, which includes inflation, and then real GDP growth, which does not include inflation, nominal GDP growth has been growing and growing and growing, describing exactly the phenomenon that I was just talking about. But what's been happening to real growth? It's been doing the opposite. It's been shrinking and shrinking to the point where now it's gone so low, it's below zero. So the facts just aren't there to support the president's case that this path of higher taxes and more spending are somehow going to revitalize the economy. If that was the case, then it would have done so already, because that's what he's been doing. What role has the president's war on America's uh, energy production played and what role has the Fed played in um, record breaking um, inflation? That is a great question. So very often, anytime we talk about price increases, we just throw the label inflation. Oh, that's inflation. Gas went up. Oh, that's inflation. Oh, used cars went up. Oh, that's inflation. It's really not, though. What inflation is, is when the Federal Reserve creates too much money. And what that does is it causes the price of basically everything to go up more or less at once and more or less by the same amount. So the fact that literally everything is going up in price right now, that is an indication that, yes, we do have inflationary pressures, absolutely. And all of that blame goes right at the feet of the Federal Reserve and not the president. Where the president gets the blame, though, is where he has caused supply chain disruptions and where he has caused uh, decreases in domestic energy production. So what has that done? That has caused specific things like gasoline, like diesel fuel 
to go up dramatically in price. And that's where the president deserves the blame for those things that are rising much faster than everything else. One of the huge problems with energy, though, is because it affects everything we do and everything we buy, that means that higher energy prices eventually trickle down to everything else in the economy and the consumer gets completely soaked. And that's exactly what we just saw in this last economic report. So where do we go from here? We know where we are. We know what the problems are that we don't seem to hear the solutions being uh, parroted. Where do we go from here? Where should we go? Perhaps is a better way of putting it. The, the easiest solution is simply just to undo all of the things that have caused these problems. What does that look like in practice? It means the Federal Reserve needs to slam on the brakes hard and fast. Interest rates need to be substantially higher than where they are right now. The last time inflation was this high, the Federal Reserve had interest rates in double digits. So that kind of puts it in perspective as to where we need to be on the interest rate front. But as far as fiscal and regulatory policy goes, the Biden administration just simply needs to stop their war on American energy. They need to undo all of the regulatory burdens that they're putting on business. And that's one of the beautiful things about free market capitalism. Once you take the chains off, it will just run on its own. It doesn't need any extra prodding by the government. Are you optimistic? No, not particularly. Uh, not, Not as a consumer, I'm not. Not as an employee, I'm not, and not as a monetary scientist, I'm not. Uh, The Federal Reserve has not shown any spine or any willingness to do what needs to be done, particularly in a midterm election year when there would be political consequences for their action. As as much as we like to say that the Fed is is uh, is independent, they're they're really not at this point, unfortunately. Uh, And then I'm just I just don't have any confidence that the president is going to change uh, his current course. Well, I I would like to say I I hope you're wrong. I doubt that. But we'll see what happens next. Thank you so much for helping us to understand what's happening uh, and perhaps um, be able to communicate with the administration what we think should happen. E.J. Anthony, thank you so much. Georgine, thank you so much for having me. It was great being with you and your audience. Thank you. Again, E.J. Anthony is a research fellow in regional economics with the Heritage Foundation. Quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour of today's program, a conversation with Dinesh D'Souza. He has a new movie, 2000 Mules, and it's going to be opening in limited theatrical release Monday, May the 2nd and Wednesday, May the 4th. Here in the Portland metro area, as well as Southwest Washington, the closest theater, Century Clackamas Town Center. There's also a virtual premiere. That's one night only, Saturday, May the 7th. A digital download and DVD, which can be pre-ordered at SalemNow.com. And uh, Saturday, May the 7th, um, that will be available. Also, a companion book by the same name is going to be released uh, in October. So we'll talk with him about that. And Wes Walterman will join me later in the second hour. He is the director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir. And you might be looking at your calendar. Well, it's April. Why are we talking? Well, the hymn sing is coming up Saturday, May the 7th, 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock at Southwest Bible Church. About 100 voices in the choir. It's going to be a great opportunity to join the choir because it's a hymn sing. That means 
they will be leading and you will be singing along. It's a great opportunity to worship together. There's also a um, an invitation to a spaghetti dinner. You can purchase uh, your ticket to the spaghetti dinner, and that will be at 4.30. So if you're at the 3 o'clock hymn sing or the 6 o'clock, you can either have your dinner after or before. So check that out. SingingChristmasTree.org. That's the website. You can also call the box office at 503-557-8733. It's a free event, but it is a ticketed event. So you need to call and let them know you're coming. And uh, that's all you need to do. So check it out. That conversation coming up later this hour as, uh, excuse me, the second hour as well. Well, Dr. Fauci says the pandemic phase is over. Uh, But then he walked it back. Well, Dr. Fauci told uh, Judy Woodruff the U.S. is out of the pandemic phase. When asked about these comments, he clarified that he actually doesn't believe the pandemic is over. I want to clarify one thing, Fauci said. I probably should have said the acute component of the pandemic phase. And I understand how that can uh, lead to some misinterpretation. I was talking about the acute fomenting phase, and everyone agrees uh, we're not there. Uh, we're not getting 900,000 new infections a day. Well, RNC research says Jen Psaki contradicts Fauci, who said the U.S. is out of the pandemic phase. COVID isn't over and the pandemic isn't over. So I guess we can fight over words and what they mean. Economists warn that raising the minimum wage will increase inflation. Inflation is already bad and it will only get worse should the uh, uh, Democrats succeed in hiking the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, they predict. A recent survey of economists across the country found that 81 percent believe raising the federal minimum wage to $15 would have a negative impact on businesses, while 58 percent said that it would further contribute to record high inflation. Sixty two percent oppose a hike. Uh, What these economists are warning about Um, has sound data behind it. Some 80% of economic studies conducted since 92 have observed that increasing minimum wage levels effectively lowers employment levels. The Employment Policies Institute's Michael Salesman noted, this survey further solidifies the consensus that an extreme wage mandate is bad for both employers and employees. Economists further warned that dramatically raising the minimum wage would in turn lead to an increase in the poverty rate. In other words, it would have the exact opposite effect than what those pushing for the increase claim. So well intended, but uh, intended, but not the right outcome. Of course, this would create greater dependency on government handouts. Well, the U.S. GDP fell 1.4 percent and Alejandro Mayorkas uh, testified DHS is uh, creating a disinformation governance board. And the president's disinformation chief is a Trump dossier fan and a Hunter Biden laptop doubter. Amazon targets conservatives' children's books about gender identity, and YouTube banned a video featuring a conservative expert on voter fraud. Uh, Putin's war on uh, is on the verge of expanding outside Ukraine as it cries terrorism in Moldova. We just we're just on the edge. Something could expand this um, so quickly and easily. I hope we're all praying that that won't be the case. And preparing for that possibility. 1945, Italian uh, dictator Benito Mussolini and his mistress, Clara Petacci, are executed by Italian partisans as they attempt to flee the country on this day in history. 1958, the United States conducts the first of 35 nuclear test explosions in the Pacific, proving ground as part of Operation Hardtack. It was the hard tack first. Uh, 1958, Vice President Richard Nixon and his wife, Pat, begin a goodwill tour of Latin America that is marred by hostile mobs in Lima, Peru and Caracas, Venezuela. 
1967, Muhammad Ali is stripped of his heavyweight boxing title after he refuses to be drafted into the U.S. Armed Forces for the Vietnam War. 1967, Army General William C. Westmoreland tells Congress that backed at home by resolve, confidence, patience, determination, and continued support, this is 1967, mind you, we will prevail in Vietnam over communist aggression, end quote. 1980, President Jimmy Carter accepts the resignation of Secretary of State Cyrus Vance, who opposed the failed rescue mission aimed at freeing American hostages in Iran. Vance is exceeded by Edmund Muskie. 1988, a flight attendant is killed and more than 60 people injured when part of the roof of an Aloha airline Boeing 737 tears off during a flight from Hilo to Honolulu. 1993, the first Take Our Daughters to Work Day, promoted by the New York-based Ms. Foundation is held in an attempt to boost the self-esteem of girls by having them visit a parent's place of work. The event would be later expanded to include sons. 1994, former CIA official Aldrich Ames, who betrayed U.S. secrets to the Soviet Union and then Russia, pleads guilty to espionage and tax evasion and is sentenced to life in prison without parole. 1996, a man armed with a semi-automatic rifle goes on a rampage on the Australian island of Tasmania, killing 35 people. The gunman is captured after a 12-hour standoff at a guest cottage. 2009, Senator Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania defects from the Republican Party and joins the Democratic Party. 2014, the United States and its European allies hit more than two dozen Russian government officials, executives and companies with new sanctions as punishment for their country's actions in Ukraine. That's 2014. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, Alfie Evans, a 23 month old terminally ill, terminally ill British toddler at the center of a legal battle over his treatment, dies at a British hospital. Mm. The U.S. Department of Defense found that roughly $7 billion worth of military equipment transferred to Afghanistan security forces remained in the country during the Taliban takeover in August of last year. According to a congressionally mandated Department of Defense report, military assistance delivered to Kabul over the course of 16 years included equipment ranging from air-to-surface missiles, night vision surveillance, and Humvees, first reported CNN. The Afghan National Defense and Security Forces, uh, which were trained by the U.S. military, received $18.6 billion worth of equipment from 2005 to the U.S.'s withdrawal in August of 2021. The Defense Department spokesman, um, Army Major Rob uh, Lodwick, uh, told Fox News Digital, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle have criticized the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan that ultimately led to the death of 13 U.S. service members and the collapse of the Afghan government. Many on the Hill have also voiced frustration that the deadly technology was left in the hands of the very group the U.S. toppled some 20 years ago. And finally, Germany ramps uh, up support for Ukraine this week and now looks to send tanks and aircraft systems and armored vehicles. However, they reverse themselves shortly after. Well, Germany, uh, Germans uh, lawmakers on Thursday voted to send heavy weapons and uh, complex machinery to Ukraine just week one week after claiming its arms reserves were tapped. The vote in the lower house of parliament signifies a completed stance reversal after it passed with 586 votes in favor, 100 against and seven abstentions. First reported German news outlet DW. But it was reported earlier today that there may be a reversal on that very commitment made 
just the day before. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. When we return, a conversation with Dinesh D'Souza, his latest movie, 2,000 Mules, coming to the Portland metro area on May the 2nd and May the 4th. We'll give you all the important details when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Later in the program, we'll talk with Wes Walterman with the Singing Christmas Tree Choir. The hymn sing is coming up. We'll tell you all the important details when he joins us later in today's program. Well, Americans were told that the 2020 election was the most secure election in history. Those who disagreed were called conspiracy nuts, sore losers, or even worse. Well, the election of 22 haunts the American mind, so says celebrated filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza. There are people who in their gut feel like well, there was fraud involved. They're frustrated that no one's been able to prove it, well, until now. So what is the truth? Well, in his newest film, 2000 Mules, Dinesh D'Souza takes the audience on a gripping journey deep into the 2020 election. The film exposes how Democrats leveraged an already corrupt system to implement widespread illegal vote harvesting under the guise of increased voter access. Now, some of you are skeptical even hearing that. Others of you, Eureka, you think you finally heard what you believed all along. Well, here to talk with us about this movie that's coming to the uh, Portland area is Dinesh D'Souza. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, this is such an important question that has been left unanswered. Now, we're told this is an issue that's uh, resolved. And again, if you disagree, you're called a conspiracy nut or worse. Why this film now and what does it tell us about what happened in 2020? The reason for releasing the film now is that I think that only now is it possible to answer that question and settle the issue. In other words, the people who keep saying it's the most secure election, if you simply were to ask them, how do you know? They will start stuttering and mumbling and saying things like, well, can you provide any evidence of fraud? But let's say I couldn't. It still doesn't follow. It's the most secure election in history. So you've had this dogmatic claim on the one side that the election was great. On the other side, you've got, I smell a rat. I know something went wrong. I kind of suspect fraud, but there really hasn't been, no one has been able to show not just episodic fraud, but coordinated fraud of such a magnitude that it could and would make a difference in the presidential election. But I uh, claim, um, and I'm going to be able to show and prove um, um, with definitive evidence that there was in this movie. Now, it's important to, to emphasize, you're talking about definitive evidence. It's not speculation. It's not what we think happened. It's not what we um, suggest didn't happen. You actually have evidence. How did you harvest this evidence that is presented in this movie that is convincing proof that there was, in fact, fraud in the 2000 election, or excuse me, 2020 election? So the movie is based upon research that is done by an election intelligence organization that is called True the Vote. And what True the Vote did was they, um, they bought the cell phone data of every cell phone in the key areas where the election was decided. We're talking here about the greater Atlanta area in Georgia, um, Maricopa County in Phoenix, 
uh, in Arizona, uh, the greater Milwaukee area, the greater Detroit area in Michigan, and finally the greater Philadelphia area in Pennsylvania. Now, these are all heavily um, urban democratic areas. And what True the Vote did was they bought 10 trillion pings of cell phones. What are we talking about? We're talking about the fact that our cell phones have inside of them apps. Uh, And these apps allow your location to be tracked, not just at a moment in time, but the movement of it. And so what Truth the Vote did is they measured the movement of these mules uh, from these left-wing activist organizations, let's call them the vote stash houses, uh, picking up a bunch or a satchel of ballots, and then going from one drop box to the next drop box to the next drop box to stuff three ballots in here, five ballots in there, ten ballots here. And all of this is documented electronically through the cell phones, but you can also see it on video. Well, I saw the trailer, and it really is fascinating to consider the implications of what you um, demonstrate in the movie. Now, the movie is titled 2,000 Mules. Perhaps you can explain that for those who don't know what a mule is in relation to an election. So the term mule is kind of coming out of drug trafficking or sex trafficking. A mule is a kind of in-between guy, the delivery man, if you will. Well, we're talking about ballot trafficking, and the mule is plays exactly the same role. So who is a mule? It's a professional operative, typically kind of an Antifa type, who goes to a left-wing organization, picks up these fraudulent ballots, and then is paid money, paid money per ballot, to go in the middle of the night, typically wearing gloves, uh, to secretly uh, stuff the ballot boxes with fraudulent ballots. And we've counted the minimum. The actual number is much greater. But we used a very conservative measure to identify 2,000 mules in these five urban areas alone. Now, you write that the purpose of this investigation is to know the truth and to make sure that it can't happen again. If we watch the movie, we become convinced by the evidence that's presented. How can we prevent this from happening again? It can be prevented um, in, in a couple of ways. The first is by having very good voter integrity laws that make it difficult to cheat. Uh, The second is by having um, electronic surveillance on every drop box so that any of the, I mean, we're looking at felonies being committed one after the other in the movie. Uh, Obviously, those are going to be more difficult to pull off if you've got 24-hour electronic surveillance. We have a whole bunch of video in the movie, but a lot of the um, areas and a lot of the counties and states didn't bother to have any surveillance at all. Um, People need to be more involved in the process. By and large, conservatives and Republicans tend to focus on the campaign while Democrats Mm -hmm. focus on the election. So conservatives focus on like rallies and let's talk to people and get the information out. But Republicans don't focus on who's actually going to be working as a poll worker, who's going to be observing the the voting count, who's going to open the envelopes of all these mail-in ballots, who's going to actually count the votes. Democrats recognize that that aspect of the voting is critical, but I think we need to pay more attention to it. Mm. We're talking about 2,000 Mules. It's going to be available in a limited theatrical release Monday, May the 2nd, and Wednesday, May the 4th. Here in the Portland metro area, that will be seen at the Century Clackamas Town Center. There's also an opportunity for a virtual premiere. That's one night only, Saturday, May the 7th. That's a digital download and DVD, which you can pre-order. Uh, and finally, there's an opportunity for you to... Uh, uh, to enjoy a um, 
Uh, let's see, there's a third, a digital download and DVD uh, that's available on May the 7th. There'll be a companion book on the same title that will be released by Regnery October 4th. But we'll revisit that when we get a bit closer to the date. The important thing to remember right now is the opportunity to see the movie. Now, if you happen to have been convinced that this was, in fact, the most secure election in history, let me challenge you to see the movie 2000 Mules. If you are skeptical that this is was the most secure election, election in history. Let me encourage you to see 2000 Mules. Whichever side you happen to be on, allow yourself to be um, convinced based on evidence what happened in 2020. As we are in the uh, uh, in the wake of the coming midterm elections and then the next presidential election. Um, let me ask you uh, what you hope this uh, this movie will help achieve uh, moving forward as people, perhaps uh, Republicans more than Democrats, are thinking about uh, the election a bit differently, the the balloting and the election itself? Well, the simple truth of it is we have never had, in my opinion, an election heist like this in American history. I mean, there might have been a little cheating that put uh, Kennedy over the top in 1960 over Nixon. That would be cheating largely in Cook County, Illinois. But the idea of a coordinated campaign in key states uh, to produce half a million uh, fraudulent votes uh, for Joe Biden, the very idea that the wrong guy could be in the Oval Office. I mean, even the Constitution doesn't even consider this possibility. The Constitution says the electors submit their they, they make their votes. There's, uh, they're then accepted by joint meeting of Congress. But the idea, well, what happens a year later if it turns out that the guy who's in the Oval Office has cheated or was the beneficiary of systematic cheating by his own side. What then? The Constitution is dead silent. So you can see why the, the movie is a really important truth-telling movie because it puts us into somewhat uncharted territory. Oh, absolutely, it does. Once again, you have uh, two opportunities coming up to see this uh, limited theatrical release Monday, May the 2nd and Wednesday, May the 4th here in the Portland metro area. That will be available to you at the uh, Century Clackamas Town Center Theater. That's on Southeast 82nd, um, 7 o'clock p.m. for both performances. And let me encourage you to take advantage of the opportunity to uh, to see it. You can uh, go to the website 2000 and that's the number 2000. Mules.com for all the important uh, information and to see the uh, the trailer of the, the movie. And we'll certainly keep you updated on the companion book and other ways that you might have an opportunity to invite others to see uh, this movie in the future. Dinesh D'Souza, it's good to have you back. And thank you so much for uh, the movie and for taking time to talk with us about it. Georgina, I really appreciate it. I also want to emphasize that, that the website is the only place to get tickets. You can't get them from the theaters themselves. We have rented out these theaters. So go to 2000mules.com. There are five different ways to see the movie. Check it out on the website and figure out what's the, ba- what's the best way that you want to see oh, it. Excellent. I'm glad you pointed that out because I would have assumed otherwise. Once again, thank you so much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Again, the website 2000mules.com, the only place uh, to purchase tickets for the theater or uh, to take advantage of opportunities to see the movie in some of the other platforms that will be available. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, we just learned that the Global Methodist Church is launching 
Um, African leaders are going to wait to join. But while departing U.S. congregations have started the process of joining the new leaner denomination, some conservatives in Africa, they're holding out for the much delayed 2024 conference vote that will give them a clearer picture of what's happening. Well, launching on May the 1st, this new denomination plans to uphold traditional conservative Wesleyan theology, but ran on a, a rather run on a lighter, leaner infrastructure that emphasizes grassroots accountability and ministry connection. Well, after years of delays with the next opportunity to vote on a proposal to split scheduled in 2024, some uh, United Methodist Church congregations in the U.S. are starting the, the disaffiliation process and they plan to join the GMC as soon as they can. Again, the Global Methodist Church. Uh, and though many leaders in Africa, where Methodism is growing pretty quickly, they align with the movement's conservative stances on LGBT issues, they're more inclined to wait. Well, at least one regional body in Europe has already decided to switch all its congregations over to the Global Methodist Church. In the U.S., the denomination's top court has yet to rule on whether regional bodies are uh, can disaffiliate uh, together under current church law. But for now, U.S. churches are opting to join the GMC one by one. Mosaic Church in Evans, Georgia, for example, plans to join the new Methodist denomination, but the process to leave the UMC will take months. From the pews, not much will change. Mosaic's name and logo will remain the same, as will the format of their Sunday worship. The lead pastor, Carolyn Moore, uh, will continue emphasizing Wesleyan theology in her sermons, and the church will continue its work partnering with ministries that help the people who, in Moore's view, tend to fall through the cracks of other churches. Even the pension plans for the pastor and other staff members will still go through the West Path benefits and investments, which is what the um, the existing church uses um, the organization that manages UMC pensions. But behind the scenes, the church is going to belong to another body of believers. The property, its warehouse meeting space sits on and will no longer be held in trust by the United Methodist Church. Mosaic will own that property. And that's been an issue when churches have split based on theological differences uh, Mosaic will abide uh, by a new book of discipline, one that defines terms, uh, term limits for bishops, sets financial contributions based on church budget, forbids trust clauses, um, and does a number of other things. It creates an accountability system in which bishops report to clergy and lay people, not just other bishops. Well, we regard the front of ministry as being the local church, and we believe the denominations exists to empower, equip, deploy the local church and ministry in the local setting and regional and global outreach. That's a quote from the chairman of the Wesleyan Covenant Association, Keith Boyette, a conservative renewal group within the UMC and the chairman of GMC's Transitional Leadership Council. Well, he and the council leaders uh, set out to build the denomination to bring Methodists together without what they saw as a, a bloated institutional structure of the UMC. Well, the Global Methodist Church, again, the more conservative new arm of the Methodist Church, will have regional annual conferences, but they will play a supporting role for the local church rather than serving as the basic unit of ministry, as they do in the United Methodist Church. The GMC won't have programs like denominational seminaries or summer camps to fund. Our goal, says Boyette, 
is to reduce the amount of money leaving the local church for denominational expenses, expenses rather, by at least 50 percent. Well, this new version of the Methodist Church, the GMC regional bodies in the U.S., will be paired with bodies outside the U.S. to partner in ministry and financial support. There will also be stronger accountability structures in place, according to um, the uh, Methodist Renewal Group Good News uh, leader, and help... um, uh, and they'll help to draw or draft a GMC transitional book of doctrines and discipline. That's still in the process. As you go through clergy and bishops, there will be enhanced accountability to ensure people are abiding by teachings and practices of the Global Methodist Church. Uh, he went on to say, well, for decades, the UMC had spotty enforcement around its doctrines on sexuality, which bar same-sex marriage and clergy and same-sex relationships. Well, certain churches and bishops permitted and promoted LGBT stances with uh, that violated those teachings. Well, the differing stances on same-sex marriage have continued to drive the denomination apart. In, ni- in 2019, rather, parties in the UMC agreed on a plan for splitting the denomination where conservative churches would be able to keep their property as they leave and receive $25 million to start a new denomination. But the pandemic forced the UMC to twice postpone its general conference in which that would have been carried out, delaying votes on the proposal called the Protocol of Reconciliation and Grace Through Separation. Well, earlier this year, the denomination announced that the general conference has to wait until 2024. Well, many United Methodists had grown impatient with the denomination, clearly struggling to function effectively at the general church level. That's what Mr. Boyette went on to say when he announced the plans to launch GMC this year rather than wait for a vote to split. Theologically, conservative local churches and annual conferences want to be free of divisive and destructive debates and to have the freedom to move forward together. Well, Mosaic, which is the one church used as an example, is currently governed by the North Georgia Annual Conference. And according to the conference's disaffiliation process and requirements, the church has to vote by a two-thirds majority to disaffiliate, pay the annual conference two years of denominational dues and prorated pension liability and receive a ratifying vote by the annual conference. But what if an entire annual conference opts to go? Well, bishops um, have asked the Judicial Council of the the nomination's highest court to rule on whether annual conferences in the U.S. can leave ahead of the general conference. So it gets rather complicated when you're part of a denomination. Well, European uh, European annual conferences are taking matters into their own hands as well. Members of the um, Bulgaria-Romania Provisional Annual Conference voted unanimously on April the 1st to leave the UMC, the United Methodist Church, and join the Global Methodist Church over the objections of its presiding bishop. But the birth of a new denomination doesn't mean Methodists around the world are ready to join just yet. Many United Methodists in Africa plan to stay with the UMC until that general conference in 2024 in hopes that the general conference will approve the protocol. The one general coordinator for the renewal group, um, the UMC Africa Initiative, says he believes the protocol is a way to amicably amicably separate the church so we don't have um, litigation and don't have to see one another as enemies. He points to examples from Scripture where believers parted ways and still worked together, including Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15 and Lot and Abram in Genesis 13. So the hope is this can be amicable. But despite the willingness of many Africans to wait for 2024 and the passage of the protocol, they still feel that progressive United Methodists in the U.S. are trying to ignore their voices despite their numbers. 
African members. They're poised to grow beyond the size of the church in the United States. And according to a 2019 UMC State of the Church report, the number of United Methodist members in Africa more than doubled from 3 million to 6.2 million over the prior decade. By 2020, U.S. membership had fallen to 6.3 million. There is a general mood across Africa, a holy discontent for a church that doesn't respect us for who we are and wants to impose upon us a practice that is inconsistent with Scripture. Well, fellow African Methodist leaders have said they believe if the church had met this uh, year to pass a separation protocol, a majority of African UMC churches would be readying to join the GMC. So this will be an interesting process to observe. Uh, There's an effort to do so amicably uh, without establishing uh, enemies. Um, But again, it will be rather interesting, the pause between now when the GMC is launching and 2024 when the UMC conference takes place. Uh, in which this issue will very likely be discussed. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, we're going to have a conversation with Wes Walterman. He is the director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. You might have missed him this year. He had a heart surgery and didn't find out until days before the first performance of the tree. We'll find out how he's doing and let you know about the upcoming Singing Christmas Tree Hymn Sing coming up Saturday, May 7th, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock at Southwest Bible Church. All of that when we return Right here on the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as I mentioned earlier in the program, I've been looking forward to a conversation with Wes Walterman, who is the director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir. And you might be wondering, why are we talking about Christmas in April? Well, the Singing Christmas Tree Choir's Hymn Sing is coming up May the 7th. Uh, there are two performances on that day, and Wes joins us to talk a little bit about what's happening at Southwest Bible Church, May the 7th at 3 o'clock p.m. and again at 6 o'clock p.m. Wes Walterman, it is such a delight to talk to you. Well, it's been at least a year since uh, you and I have spoken last, and it feels good to kind of be back in the saddle again, and and the choir's coming right along, and we're super anxious for this uh, for this Hempson coming up. So thank you for having me on the, uh, your show this morning. This afternoon, Georgine. No, absolutely. Well, one of my favorite events is the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Hymn Sing. And for listeners who've never attended, can you describe a little bit of what they might expect? Yes, uh, it it is a ticketed event, but it's a free event. We just need to kind of know how many are anticipating coming. So uh, basically, uh, the audience comes in, and uh, it's a time where we have our 100-voice choir up front kind of leading us all in, in various hymns of the church throughout decades and decades and centuries of great hymns. Um, and so it's just an evening that we join with our band and some special guests, soloists as well. And it's about an hour and a half, and the audience participates on almost every single song. So there'll be a lot of time of standing, of sitting, of, of sharing stories, the nostalgia behind the hymns. And so it's, it's just super exciting for the uh, for the audience themselves. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I so enjoy hearing the voices coming from the audience as they're 
uh, sharing in these hymns that, as you point out, they span generations. And some of us sang them in church. Some of us are learning them for the first time. But there's been sort of a tradition around uh, people coming together around these great hymns of the faith. And nobody does it better than the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir and whatever the congregation ends up being joining uh, in song. Now, as I mentioned, we're talking about two performances coming up on Saturday, May the 7th at Southwest Bible Church that's located on Southwest Weir Road in Beaverton. Uh, as you mentioned, it's a ticketed event, but free of charge. Now, for those of you who would like preferred seating, um, they, um, you can purchase preferred seating. Let me see if I get this right. And that's available for a donation of $25 or $50. And you can get, you know, seats that are up front or wherever you would like uh, them to be. There's also seating for those who need special accommodation. And we'll give you um, a number to call for, for that as well. And um, as is kind of a hark back to the old days, uh, there's an opportunity to share a meal um, before the or after the hymn sing as well. As I mentioned, there's the three o'clock and the six o'clock performance. And at four thirty, there's going to be a spaghetti dinner available for purchase. So you can have a meal after you've uh, enjoyed the, the hymn sing or you can enjoy a meal before you go into the second performance. And that is uh, ten dollars when you reserve your hymn sing ticket. So that's a lot to take. In, but it's going to be a great evening. A couple of ways for you to um, to say, yes, I want to come and I want to reserve a ticket. You can go to the website, Singing Christmas Tree. Let me make sure I get this right. I wrote it down and everything. SingingChristmasTree.org. Or you can call the box office at 503-557-8733. 503-557-8733. That information will be on the uh, uh, KPDQ and Georgine Rice Show Facebook page if you are behind the wheel. Now, how many years has the Singing Christmas Tree put on a, a hymn sing? Do you know, Wes? You know, I think we started in 2016, uh, skipped last year. And so uh, I think this will be our fifth or sixth year uh, for the hymn sing. And the only reason we do hymn sing and we thought about doing a hymn sing is number one, uh, hymns seem to be going to the side. You know, a lot of churches only have a set amount of time for music. And the writers and arrangers of, of new modern music, they're amazing. And um, so there's just limited time in a, in a church service for music. And so sometimes the hymns kind of get left left to the side. And so we, want, we as an organization want to make sure we pick that up. And uh, say these are important. These, the theology of hymns—they've yes. uh, been around for for hundreds of years. We've got to preserve this. And so we decided on the opposite calendar year from our singing Christmas tree to have something different. And so we thought, well, let's let's do a hymn night and just see who comes. And thousands of people came to that first one, and it was it was a great success from that moment forward. And taught me, you know, from young to old, we saw a, an array of different ages in the audience. It, it didn't matter. People love the hymns. And, and so that's why we do it year after year. And it's, uh, again, one of the highlights for me just in general in the course of the year. Now, the Singing Christmas Tree Choir will feature some special guests. Timothy Greenwich will be singing, Coral Walterman, Aaron Tamblin, and, of course, the congregation will be singing along with the choir. So it's a wonderful evening. I, I find myself in tears at some point, some, sometimes multiple times throughout the evening. Yeah. Um, we, we laugh together. We sing together. We may shed a tear together. But it's such an edifying and worshipful time 
that I just want to encourage people. If you've been, I don't need to talk you into it. If you haven't been, let me encourage you to take advantage of this tremendous opportunity. And again, we're talking about Saturday, May the 7th uh, at 3 o'clock and at 6 o'clock p.m. So you have two choices. And if you'd like to have a meal either before or after, you can purchase your spaghetti dinner for $10 when you reserve your hymn sing ticket, which, by the way, is free but is required. So you need a ticket. And if you'd like preferred seating, you know, those special seats you can uh, purchase through a donation for $25 or $50 or uh, for that. So it's going to be a great evening. I am so sorry that I'm not going to be able to join the choir this time around. Dan Rice and I are celebrating our 40th wedding anniversary and we're going to spend a few days in Hawaii. That's about the only thing I can think of that would prevent me <laughs> from coming and being a part of that hymn sing and seeing you, Wes, yeah. since you uh, uh, were not with us uh, this year for the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. But it's a great event and I'm so grateful that after a year's hiatus with the pandemic, it is back. <laughs> anything well, we're excited too. Yeah, anything we just can't wait. Anything we should know about this year's performance in particular? No, uh doors open uh, an hour before. Come early, grab a great seat, warm your voice up on the way over to the church uh so you're ready to sing with us and we're just going to celebrate the Lord through hymns. Uh, for about an hour and a half. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time together. Yeah, and I do want to emphasize the fact that this it's a hymn saying that means the congregation joins in with the choir, and it is such a beautiful expression of worship. I just absolutely love that. And I, I can't let you go, uh, Wes, without finding out how you're doing. I know people who have come to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree have come to expect to see you directing the choir. You weren't there this year. How are you doing? You know, uh, coming in, I, I did all the rehearsals up to uh, mid-November with the singing Christmas tree, and then I got news from my cardiologist. I need a heart. I need heart surgery ASAP. So I had a micro valve replaced. Uh, it, it threw me for a little bit of a loop because I was, you know, ready to go and I was feeling fine. But uh, that, that's more important. So I'm, I'm starting to feel better. Uh, two months of recuperating. I'm, I've been back to work now. Uh, I was be um, I couldn't be behind the wheel of my car for two months, you know, believe it or not. So just kind of getting back into life, and I'm really looking forward to this, to the hymn singing. It's kind of the first musical thing I'm, I'm getting ready to do, along with uh, Paul Willie as well, yeah. who also directs the uh, singing Christmas tree. So both of us are very excited. I appreciate you asking about my health, and the prayers have been going up for me. And I, I definitely feel those prayers, and I'm definitely on the road to uh, healing. Well, I'm so grateful for that. And you're right. Many of us have been praying for weeks and months, and it's just a delight to hear your voice and to know that you're going to be back behind the baton for the uh, the hymn sing coming up on Saturday, May the 7th at Southwest Bible Church on Southwest Weir Road in Beaverton. Once again, the event is uh, ticketed, but those tickets are free. All you need to do is uh, call or go online to reserve your tickets. You can go to singingchristmastree.org or you can call the uh, the box office at 503-557-8733. And when you purchase your ticket, if you'd like to join in on the spaghetti dinner, that's going to be um, at 4.30. So if you are at the 3 o'clock performance or you're coming to the 6 o'clock, you can have a meal before or after your participation in the hymn sing. So it's a great opportunity for fellowship and just makes it a 
a great, uh, great evening. If you'd like preferred seating, you can uh, check that out as well when you call or go online. And if you need special accommodation, we would love to um, accessible seating. We would love to make that arrangement for you as well. Well, Wes, thank you so much for your leadership of the choir and uh, leading this congregation, the choir and those who will be coming to the hymn sing in worship. It's going to be a great evening. Well, happy 40th to you and Dan. Uh, enjoy the warmth of Hawaii, and we'll be thinking of you and wishing you were there with us. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'll be doing the same. <laughs> Thanks so much, Wes uh-huh. Walterman. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Again, Wes Walterman, the director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir. He'll be directing the hymn sing along with Paul Willie coming up Saturday, May the 7th. Check it out. SingingChristmasTree.org or call the box office at 503-557-8733. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I read with interest some headlines today. I think it was in the um, Christian, what's the, the Christian Post. That's where it was in the Christian Post. Here are a couple of them. American Bible Society survey finds unprecedented drop in Bible reading. Another, 43% of millennials don't know, don't care, don't believe God exists. That's based on a study. Another, only 9% of Gen Z youth are Bible-centered. And then this headline, parents of preteens in spiritual state of distress as adherence to biblical Christianity fades. Well, this was a Barna study, and I'll... Take a moment to take a look at that one. But according to Leonardo Blair, who is a senior features reporter for the Christian Post, parents of preteen children younger than 13 are in a state of spiritual distress as American adherence to biblical Christianity fades, even in churches. And a tragic crash is coming as a result of the situation. Well, that's according to new data from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University and the American Worldview Inventory 2022. Now, these may not be definitive. It may be a very small number, a snapshot of what's going on within the culture, but it is at least worth considering. While the warning signs they go on to point out are in um, uh identifiable and unmistakable, it appears that parents, as well as their support system, churches, extended family and parachurch ministries, are too distracted or disinterested to acknowledge and address the parenting crisis. It seems that a tragic crash is in store, according to George Barna. He's the director of research at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian in a release earlier this month. He goes on to explain parents to whom the Bible assigns the primary responsibility for shaping the worldview of their children are called to equip youngsters to grow up in relationship with and service to God. That requires the intentional and consistent development of a biblical worldview in the minds and hearts of children, since every person's worldview begins developing before their second birthday. Yet parents are not devoted to biblical worldview development in their children, partly because they do not possess a biblical worldview to pass on to their progeny. Well, the CRC, the Christian Research Center, uh, research reveals that a a paltry 2% of the parents of preteens, children in the worldview development window, have a biblical worldview. A big reason for the lack of a biblical worldview in parents today is um, syncretism. This ideology is described as the worldview that merges otherwise incompatible philosophies of life 
into a made-to-order worldview that incorporates enough biblical elements to be minimally Christian in nature. Well, under the sway of syncretism, according to Barna, the American church has failed to contend earnestly for the Christian faith. The American church, Barna goes on to point out, has lowered the entry bar so much that it's difficult to identify any beliefs that disqualify one from claiming to be a Christian. The parents of children under the age of 13 are a stellar example of this Christian nominalism that is widely accepted as spiritually normal and healthy. Indeed, a worldview is compromised, or rather comprised, of a unified series of beliefs that then determine behavior. The alarm bell has not been rung because there is no single belief or even limited series of identifiable beliefs that are acknowledged as undermining Christianity or disqualifying as amenable adults from being considered a disciple of Jesus. Well, Barna suggests that one explanation for the current crisis of faith is that the American church is measuring the wrong indicators of faith by emphasizing, he notes, Measures such as church attendance and participation in prayer, the emphasis is placed upon the quantity rather than the quality of spiritual activity and on overt participation rather than core developmental efforts. Again, he goes on. In other words, the emphasis is placed upon breadth rather than depth. But even more significantly, the spiritual warning signs have been misinterpreted. By looking for glaring deficiencies in the lives of self-described Christians, leaders have ignored the importance of numerous, less noticeable deficiencies. Their conclusions in this is that nobody is perfect, so while there are some identifiable spiritual and lifestyle defects among parents, they are not sufficiently disturbing to constitute a crisis or require a concerted call to action. Church leaders, explained Barna, have largely ignored the crisis of faith in the Christian community because indicators like church attendance, Bible sales, and donations have remained sufficiently robust to feel reassured. While he notes that while some commentators on the effect of syncretism on the American church might minimize it as a rough patch, emerging data on children shows a different picture. The disinterest and even disrespect many children show to their elders is partially a reaction to the lack of authenticity and integrity they experience in the presence of parents, teachers, pastors, and other cultural leaders. Children sometimes feel compelled to ignore adults whose talk and walk are inconsistent. When children are exposed to teaching through words or action, whether formal or informal, that are contradictory, they naturally conclude that the Christian faith is inherently contradictory and therefore may not be what they are seeking as a life philosophy. Well, Barna adds that young people may be interested in and intrigued by Bible stories, but unless the underlying life principles are both identified and exemplified, children are likely to miss out on those life-changing truths. Well, he suggested that the reason most Christians aren't alarmed by the crisis of faith and parenting could be that the rest of the culture is synchronistic as well. Data published by ACU last year shows that of an estimated 160, uh, excuse me, 176 million American adults who identify as Christian, just 6% or 15 million of them actually hold a biblical worldview. The study shows in general that while the majority of Americans self-identified Christians, including many who identify as evangelical, believe that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and is the creator of the universe— More than half reject a number of biblical teachings and principles, including the existence of the Holy Spirit. Strong majorities also 
errantly believe that all religious faiths are of equal value. People are basically good and that people can use acts of goodness to earn their way into heaven. Well, the study further showed that majorities don't believe in moral absolutes. Consider feelings, experience, or the input of friends and family as their most trusted sources of moral guidance and say that having faith matters more than which faith one actually has. Well, according to Barna, if ever there was a time when our nation was desperate for a grassroots spiritual revival led by the remnant in the pews who still revere God, Jesus Christ, the Bible and truth, now is that time. I mentioned late in the program yesterday that Dan Rice and I will be celebrating our 40th wedding anniversary, and we're going to take a quick trip to the little island of Hawaii to celebrate. We'll be gone for five days, but I'll be gone for a week and a day uh, from the program. And I know that one of the uh, uh, pastors who will be filling in for me, Pastor Greg, uh, will be um, is someone who is committed to he and his congregation praying for revival And perhaps during the course of his visit, he'll talk a bit about that. I know that is his heartbeat. Uh, But this uh, this Barna uh, survey certainly tells us that we need to pray more earnestly and consider where we stand as the body of Christ if we want to effectively minister to a culture that desperately needs to know and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. We are out of time. Tomorrow, we're going to take a look at uh, the headline news. We'll take a look at the lighter side of the news and we'll share uh, some of the, um, we'll share all of the Christian outlook as well. So looking forward to that. Also want to remind you that coming up next week, the National Day of Prayer, the first Thursday in May is always the National Day of Prayer. That's coming up next Thursday. You can go to Christian News Northwest. They have a lot of great information where you can connect to events that are already taking place. Uh, And there's also um, a way to connect with others to um, make sure that if someone is looking in your area for a place to observe the National Day of Prayer, they can join you. So uh, make note of that. I want to thank uh, James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.